Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing. I'm Emma Norris, the Director of Research at the Institute for Government, and for this week, the guest presenter of the podcast. The government is at war with, well, pretty much everyone, it seems. It's battling devolved leaders and local politicians, most notably Andy Burnham, the Mayor of Greater Manchester, over coronavirus restrictions. It's falling out with footballers over free school meals. And it spent the first half of the week not even talking to the EU. What did that standoff mean for Brexit talks? We'll be taking a closer look at the tears and the tantrums of the last week. And later on in the podcast, we'll be discussing the changing role of special advisers in government, with a brand new IFG paper arguing that number 10 reforms to the way that these advisers work and how they report to the Prime Minister is disempowering ministers. And yes, the name Dominic Cummings does feature in that paper a lot. To discuss all this, I'm joined from an array of remote studios by a top lineup of guests, the IFG's senior fellow Jill Rutter. Hi, Jill. Hi, Emma. By Alex Thomas, the IFG's Programme Director for all our work on the civil service. Yes, he is very busy at the moment. Hello, Alex. (laughs) Hi, Emma. Good to be here. And Kath Haddon, who leads our work on ministers and the constitution as well as two. Hi, Kath. Hi, Emma. Okay, so let's start with the latest developments in Number 10's attempts to place parts of England into lockdown and its painful efforts to negotiate the terms of those restrictions with local politicians. Alex, Andy Burnham's been very much the pin-up of this standoff. Can you tell us what the row's about? Uh, yes, and he has been, and it's it's one of the interesting factors about it in that there have been, you know, there are a lot of actors in this debate and uh, row, as you said, but Andy Burnham, because he's he's the man with the mandate in um, in Manchester, has been the, uh, the the face of it. So the the row is a consequence of the regional approach that the government's been taking to lockdown and the different tiers that it's um, been applying. And so uh, the government's got itself into a negotiation between the the uh, uh, local authorities and the uh, regional mayor over um, uh, the financial support to compensate for the uh, movement restrictions, the social restrictions and the business uh, restrictions that that, that are applying in these local and regional uh, lockdowns. From Andy Burnham's perspective, he'll have been uh, fighting to get the best deal for for his constituents and the people of Manchester and holding out enough uh, for enough cash to create something of an equivalent to the the furlough scheme and the other business support that was available in uh, earlier lockdowns. Um, From the government's perspective, they'll have been worried about um, setting a precedent for other councils, other other regional uh, lockdowns and other areas. They will have been nervous about the fact that Manchester and Burnham were explicitly saying they wanted to use this to top up the Treasury's um, furlough and other support schemes, which is contrary to government policy. And they'll, they'll be, um, be a bit frustrated with Andy Burnham as they would see it grandstanding. But, but the whole, all, all the while, the virus cases are, are, are going up and um, uh, the, the, the lockdown was, was delayed until being imposed this week. And as you say, Alex, I mean, ultimately, it came down for, to a very small amount of money. There's about £5 million difference between what Manchester was asking and what government was offering. Where do you think the resistance is coming from in central government? Is it the Treasury? Is it number 10? So I think it, it's those different those different factors that I was saying earlier. So the Treasury will have been uh, holding out on this and will have been concerned about setting precedents for giving more money to uh, to other areas. Uh, and also they will have been frustrated that Burnham was pitching this as a, you know, we need to top up the, the support that's available from the Treasury. The political frustrations with, with Burnham and not wanting to give him uh, a win, as they would see it, I suspect would have been coming from number 10. And on um, that being seen as a win, who has emerged as the winner here? Kath, who do you think's won out? Um, I mean, I, I, like from a purely presentational point of view, as you know, Alex has been saying, 
Burnham is the one that has come out, you know, he's getting references to being the king of the north and and so forth. So he has certainly come out as a very strong political leader on this topic, even though he's representing Manchester, you know, he's, he's, it's a point that's going to resonate more widely. In terms of the outcomes for it, I mean, Manchester has gone into tier three lockdown, well, not lockdown, but tier three category with all of the extra restrictions on that. Burnham hasn't yet got the extra money that he wanted, but the government have give, you know, reverted back to the, the 60 million figure that they were originally throwing at him. So, I mean, in that sort of sense, and for the people of Manchester, um, you know, there isn't necessarily a winner here. You've still got to deal with COVID. You've still got these huge pressures on, on various businesses. You know, so it's it's all quite horrible, and in some respects, the all of the politics of this hasn't been that edifying for how we can do what are going to be increasingly tricky uh, regional lockdowns if we keep doing that, um, where you have these sorts of situations arriving, and it's not going anywhere anytime soon. So they need to do better at, at managing these conversations. I think the government have definitely come off worse in terms of their handling of all of it, particularly over the comms of all of this. Emma, I'm not sure if I could come in on that. I think um, I think Kathy's right. I think the Treasury and Number Ten are paying a price for not doing this very strategically. What you would have thought is once you uh, once you embark on a regional process, you need to have set out some sort of principles by which you'll be offering support. People have been trying to work backwards to work out whether there's some sort of tariff. You get eight quid ahead for test and trace. You seem to get 28 or 29 quid ahead uh, for moving into tier three for your businesses. One of the things that I think is really, really interesting is that the government's been forced to rethink its winter economic plan. Uh, As we're recording this, we're about to hear from Rishi Sunak on what that looks like. And the really interesting thing there, and I think where Andy Burnham, the northern leaders are going to go a bit up in arms, is it looks as though moving London and the West Midlands into tier two has led the government to think about the need for a new package for tier two businesses, those businesses who are finding it difficult to do business but Mm. aren't required to shut. Whereas Manchester would say, well, we've been in that sort of limbo land for months and you didn't do anything particularly for us. Um, Some of the evidence, Chris Cook's done some number crunching. For Tortoise, which says spending actually in Manchester wasn't that different from other places, not in that sort of uh, lockdown position. But I think what the government really needs to watch out for is the idea that's already taking root, that it's one rule for the North and another more generous rule if it comes nearer home and the more high-profile South, And that's obviously a bit toxic if you put together the sort of electoral coalition that the government uh, constructed its majority with. And whilst we're on the new announcements, Jill, that Sunat's going to be making in about half an hour's time, um, we know that it's about offering um, a better package for businesses in tier two. Uh, Do we think it goes far enough based on the briefings we've heard? Well, we don't really know quite what it's offering yet. I think clearly uh, moving from... Uh, one package if you're shut down to a package that also applies and doesn't expect much of an employer contribution if you are um, you know business becomes un- becomes unviable 
given the extent of lockdown, then I think that clearly would be welcomed by people who are in this sort of position that they've seen loads of their business fall away, but they're not being required to shut down. If you remember, Emma, that was the position we were in in that sort of uncomfortable week in early March before the Chancellor came out with his initial furlough proposals, Mm. when Boris Johnson was telling people not to go to the pub or not to go to restaurants but they weren't formally shut down. Jill, just a question on that. I mean, Sunak is getting a certain amount of flack for yet again coming out with another new package. I think this is like the fourth in three weeks or something. He had the winter economic package only last week. Is that really fair, though? Because, I mean, you know, in this kind of situation, a lot of stuff is, is moving rapidly. Should we want him to keep iterating and iterating or is this a failure to sort of foresee some of these problems coming up? I think it's a bit of both, actually. I think iteration is good. Uh, I think if the circumstances change, then you should change your policy. I think, though, what you could say that the government has failed to really work out, and I think Stephen Bush wrote something very good about this in the New Statesman earlier in the week, is the government has two sort of policies that don't really seem to quite match. It has a uh, it is a regional lockdown policy, but it doesn't seem to have taken that need for lockdowns into its economic policy in quite the same way, because the winter economic plan, which I think was introduced a bit longer ago than last week, but the winter economic plan was rather predicated on an economy emerging from coronavirus as opposed to an economy being tipped back into what now looks like quite a serious second wave. So I think you could say that the Treasury didn't make clear then that it might have to adjust its winter economic plan if uh, coronavirus was coming back. At the moment, the government seems to be sort of, you know, as we said, trying to do everything it can to avoid a national lockdown, but it needs to make clear whether Different stages of lockdown mean different things. Remember that word that the Chancellor used about only wanting to support viable jobs. The question is, viable under what circumstances? And I think the Treasury can, I think, good iteration, but bad not thinking through the potential scenarios and making clear to people what the sort of different circumstances are that will apply because you really want your economic policy and your public health policy to be a coherent whole rather than one following the other uh, with some gaps which put people in very difficult positions and make it incredibly difficult for businesses to plan and incredibly stressful when you hear people all saying we don't know what we're going to be able to do next week we've seen our business fall off the cliff but we're not getting any money that's not a great price to be inflicting on people yeah um, Alex, the other thing we've heard from Sunak this week is that he is dropping plans uh, for a multi-year spending review. This is something, in fact, that IFG has been calling for for a while. What are the advantages of shifting to a one-year spending review and, and what are the risks? Uh, yes, I think it was a it was a recognition of the inevitable um, around the, uh, the the spending review. Um, and uh, as, as, as you say, uh, colleagues in the IFG have been saying this is the sensible way forward for some time. So so recognition of reality. The advantages of a one-year spending review is you, 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 know, you, you know more about the circumstances. It's Everything is so uncertain, both how much money is going to come into the government's uh, coffers and how much they're going to have to spend uh, on public services from you know health through to education through to financial um, support, as we were saying. So the, the enormous uncertainty that we're still in at the moment um, makes a, a one-year spending review uh, uh, pretty well inevitable. The um, thing that is lost, of course, is that longer-term certainty. One of the most sensible things about, um, about British government for the last uh, 15, 20 years or so is that there have been a series of 
three, four year spending reviews that allows certainty for departments to plan. It gives uh, a number 10 and the centre of government the opportunity to set out their um, big strategic priorities and to take things forward that way. So um, it's, it's a, it is a loss in that respect, but I'm not sure there was much else the government could uh, do. The thing to watch is the integrated review, as the jargon goes, the review of foreign and security and development policy that was going to sit alongside the spending review. We don't yet know whether that's going to be delayed or not, although there was an intriguing tweet from Tobias Elwood yesterday that suggested that, um, that the Prime Minister had committed that it would still come out on time. It's really hard to set out a, a 20, 30-year strategic defence and uh, foreign policy review uh, when you don't know how much money you're going to be able to spend uh, on, on defence. So that's one to watch over the next couple of weeks. So there's one more um, row in Manchester that I wanted to talk about briefly. The government's been taking on, for not the first but the second time this year, the Manchester United and England footballer Marcus Rashford and indeed his what, almost four million Twitter followers on the issue of free school meals. Um, Kath, how's the government allowed Rashford to uh, run rings around it for a second time this year? Uh, it, I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because there's a real sense of deja vu that, um, you know, not that, you know, we thought we could see this issue coming up again. It's the same situation as you had going into the summer of what happens during holiday periods for those kids who are on uh, free school meals. Uh, you know, many people are arguing that it is the same situation and therefore why not extend it through to next summer and cover uh, not only half term, but also the Christmas period. What's fascinating is yet again, the government don't seem to have a reply on this, uh, you know, something to sort of counter it from the get go. We we saw a bit more this time round arguments from the government that they are doing a lot already on this front, sort of trolling out the, the various different funds that they have increased that should help those, you know, low income families and so forth. But it, none of it really addresses the core issue What's most fascinating, though, is that the government seem to have not come up with sort of some clear lines for their MPs. So you've had the extraordinary situation whereby various MPs seem to be taking on Marcus Rashford on Twitter and getting themselves into sort of further hot water in terms of the types of arguments that they're putting forward about whether or not this has been going on for years and therefore, um, it, you know, claiming that it's not their fault. But obviously that just raises the question of why haven't you dealt with uh, this amount of, of uh, food poverty sort of sooner or arguing that, you know, this is because you've got small numbers of families who might abuse the system to which then obviously the response becomes, well, does that mean you're punishing the majority? So forgetting anything else, forgetting the rights and wrongs of, of the various arguments that they're putting, just on a pure comms thing, again, it seems like a failure from that point of view of just having some lines for how to respond uh, to what seemed to be yet another sort of inevitable thing coming down the track. I, I agree with Kath on the comms, and I, I agree on the sort of some of the, the slightly strange judgment about, about picking these uh, rows. I would just note one thing, though, that on both our Manchester rows at the moment, the whips do seem to have woken up a bit. Earlier in the summer, yeah. uh, it felt like debates in Parliament were fraying, government ministers were standing up, up to and including the Prime Minister, and getting a lot of flack from their own backbenchers. But if you watched Matt Hancock earlier in the week, the Labour Opposition Day debates um, are on both of these issues uh, this week, there was a bit more discipline in the Tory backbenchers, I thought, and I, I got the sense the whips were, were putting the screws on on people more than they have been, which uh, is, is good news for the government. And what, what is interesting is that the big contrast, of course, to the summer is that notwithstanding the fact that the governments of Scotland and Wales have decided to do the school meals thing, the government has so far held firm. Back in the summer, it U-turned pretty quickly when it seemed to 
realise who Marcus Rashford was, which took them a bit of time. They then gave him an MBE uh, for his successful campaign, but now seem to have decided that they are going to hold firm. So what was quite interesting was back in the summer, we were almost counting government U-turns by the week, whether it's on that, on migrant surcharge and things like that. Keir Starmer seemed to only have to ask and the government caved, whereas yesterday, despite there being the Labour motion, the government whipped against it and uh, and won. So I think it's quite interesting. There weren't very many Conservative rebels, I think there were five or six on that one, and a couple who rebelled on the Manchester formula. Okay, so if the coronavirus crisis wasn't quite enough on its plate, the government has only just over two months to strike a future trade deal with the EU. So it seemed an unfortunate time, to say the least, for talks between the UK and the EU to grind to a halt this week. That is, of course, until they then resumed again. Jill, what's going on here? Was this a real problem or is it just both sides posturing? Well, it looks like quite a bit posturing on both sides. Um, The interesting thing was that when Boris Johnson... Uh, read a lot into the communique from the European Council, but then appeared to fail to listen to what leaders said in their post-Council press conferences, absolutely nobody seemed to think that this was for real, that the talks had really, really broken down. Everybody assumed they would get back together. The only question was how quickly and on what terms. Uh, Earlier this week, we had a series of phone calls um, between uh, David Frost and Michel Barnier looked a bit like, you know, we couldn't work out whether it was a rom-com or a farce of them sort of edging a bit closer together. The UK will now claim it has, ex- has extracted meaningful concessions with the EU being prepared to acknowledge that it has to compromise too, being prepared to intensify. Remember, that was the word that was deleted from the communique by the leaders and that uh, that they will work off the basis of legal text, which was another UK demand. So whether this was actually just a choreographed show, who knows, but the talks are back on. What we don't yet know, of course, is whether there has been any substantive movement. So actually, are we nearer a landing zone? We had some hints from David Frost last week that the UK was moving on state aid. Uh, lots of people still wondering how far President Macron is prepared to go on the vexed issue of fish, where the EU knows we hold the cards, is quite worried, but uh, but that may have to be in the final political deal. We've probably not made much substantive progress, but we do seem to have made a bit of procedural progress. And now the negotiators, having wasted a few working days, seem to be committed to work over the weekend. And given the sticking points that remain, Jill, um, what's your instinct? Do you think they're going to get there? Are the sticking points solvable? Or are things going to break down again? The big question is how keen is the UK really on a deal? And I think ultimately as well, you know, would France hold out against a deal that the rest of the member states wanted for the sake of their fishermen in the north? Um, We don't know that. We don't know quite where Boris Johnson is. I think the very negative reaction that there was, from example, from business communities and others to the prospect of failing to get a deal at the weekend might have given the Prime Minister a taste of the fact that there is a political downside and risk in walking away with no deal, not uh, not least after that, what sounded like a rather unsuccessful phone call between the Prime Minister, Michael Gove, and business leaders, that 21 minutes, where Michael Gove told them it was just like moving house, 
But I think many of the business leaders felt that actually leaving the EU with no deal was more like eviction or deportation and didn't really see the sunlit uplands and the better views that Michael Gove was offering them after a bit of hassle. Um, And Kath, Boris Johnson won the general election um, in no small part because he promised to get Brexit done. I do think that that promise um, rests on this deal or have voters already moved on to to the next thing? I mean, to some extent, voters always move on. You know, the government has to start thinking about what will they be judged at at the next election, not just sort of fulfilling, you know, ticking the boxes of the manifesto. I mean, the two are related, obviously, because failing to deliver the promises that you made to the electorate is something that you might get, uh, you know, attacked on. But I think, to be honest, with something like this, it's also as much about the the nature of what you deliver and how it's delivered. So, uh, you know, Johnson has got huge headaches to think about in terms of what happens next January, Brexit combined with with uh, ongoing COVID crisis, what that's going to mean, you know, how the government uh, achieves on all of this. And also the all important part of all of this is, is who gets the blame for any of it. I mean, you know, Jill sort of touched on it a little bit, but part of these whole negotiations is, yes, about brinkmanship, about trying to push the other side, but it's also partly about trying to make sure that it's clear that it's the other side's fault if you don't get what you wanted to get. So there's a a lot of that going on. There's also a certain amount of, you know, if Johnson does get a deal, he wants, you know, like any politician before him, like Tony Blair, like Margaret Thatcher, he wants it to be seen as he forced the EU to give him the final concession that made this deal the right deal to have. Remember, you know, way back when, when we used to have that phrase of, uh, repeatedly that no deal is better than a bad deal. So there's always the question of what a bad deal looks like. So there's an awful lot of semantics uh, that will go into the narrative of, of you know, how he sees himself uh, in terms of achieving on all of this, let alone how the public view it and, and whether they think it's a success or not. So Emma, we've already had a bit of a preview of that. Uh, Michael Gove made a statement to Parliament this week uh, covering yeah. both the breakup of talks on the substantive negotiations, but also about progress in the Joint Committee. That's the sort of body looking over the Northern Ireland Protocol. I remember that was a yeah. thing where the UK had taken those powers, or was taking those powers in the Internal Market Bill to tear up the Northern Ireland Protocol. The UK was saying that was you know, showing the EU it needed to get serious in the Joint Committee. And basically, Michael Gove's statement was an absolute love-bombing of uh, of the joint committee saying how productive the meeting had been, real progress or whatever. So I think the EU may be letting the UK sort of, you know, take some uh, negotiating. We've been tough. The EU's come back to the table on our terms. The question is whether it changes any of the substance at the end of the day. And of course, the real pro- problem for the prime minister, and I think the one that really the country is not prepared for is that his deal, the deal he wants, is such a big rupture with the transition that we're in now that there will Mm. be disruption even if he gets a deal. And I think one of the things that they may be thinking about in number 10 is whether the no-deal disruption is much worse than the deal disruption. No deal you can very easily visit on the EU. Deal disruption, if the Prime Minister trumpets a greatly successful deal and negotiating triumph, it's quite difficult to then say, oh, yeah, yeah, we always knew this disruption was a price we'd pay for this sort of deal. But don't worry, it'll be better down the line. So do you think there's an incentive there for uh, for no deal after all, Jill? 
lots of people disagree with me on this, um, but I think that it's quite sort of finely balanced. The big, the big economic hit comes from leaving the customs union and the single market. I think what the government is hoping, and it's probably right to hope this, uh, is that if there is a deal that Michael Gove has referred in the past to the EU being more pragmatic, we aren't talking new transition or new implementation period, but the EU won't move to full controls, full enforcement straight away. I think it definitely will if there's no deal, but it might not in the event of a deal. So that would sort of, you know, reduce the risks of disruption. The other thing that a deal would do is, although they are what are called autonomous decisions, so not part of the negotiations, it does make it more likely that we would get uh, positive decisions on data adequacy and on financial services equivalents. It's no guarantee, but it would be easier. And remember also, and this is the thing that Theresa May managed to get uh, get headlines or clips going viral with earlier in the week. The other thing is, though we focus very much on the trade deal, having a deal also opens the way for a deal on security cooperation. And that is quite important. There was a a very good event uh, at the IFG 10 days ago where (laughs) Naomi Long, the uh, (laughs) Justice Minister in Northern Ireland, said that while a trade deal was, she thought, very important, she regarded a deal on security as absolutely essential. And I think um, ministers need to have that in mind as well. I don't think anyone was very convinced by Michael Gove saying, actually, we could have better security cooperation if we were freed of the shackles of the EU. That was the thing that provoked Theresa May's very visible so, yes, grimacing mouthing um, what. He did get the chance to um, to throw no deal is better than a bad deal back at her, though, which um, yeah. which was uh, an, an, in, an interesting moment. The, the <laughs> only thing, very briefly, I was, I was going to add is we talked a lot about ministers and government, and perhaps my role in this podcast is to pop up and talk about Tory backbenchers, but there is still, to me, a bit of an unknown in terms of just how many backbenchers there are who are really prepared to dig in on this. And uh, obviously, a lot of the theatrics at the moment are about um, persuading those backbenchers that the government's going going really, really hard on it. But it still feels a bit uncertain. The main uncertainty in my mind is less whether the government wants a deal or not. I think they they do, and I think they're worried about the disruption. It's more on whether they can sell it and how many rebels they'll they'll be, and whether they end up getting it through on Labour votes, which would be um, a really interesting. One. We've been talking about some of the government's rows that are being played out in public, but let's take a closer look at a major area of tension behind the scenes. That's the role of ministerial special advisors or SPADs, as they're usually known. We've mentioned one of them, um, David Frost, already, and the name of another, Dominic Cummings, is familiar up and down the country. Um, A new IFG paper, which is out this week, you can read it today, explores how the role of special advisors has been changing under this government and the effect that's having. Its author, IFG Associate Director Tim Durrant, joins us now. Hi, Tim. Hi, everyone. So, Tim, how has the role of SPADs been changing under this government? Well, so since Boris Johnson uh, became PM last year, we've uh, we've seen his team taking a lot more interest in who is appointed as a SPAD to other ministers uh, and, and what SPADs do. So, uh, you know, you've mentioned, obviously, uh, Dominic Cummings and David Frost as two high-profile SPADs who Cummings is sort of seems to have a kind of fairly wide-ranging brief over kind of all of government policy. Uh, and, and Frost is obviously um, chief negotiator with the EU and due to be national security advisor soon. 
But as well as those two individuals, as I think it's quite interesting looking at how the number 10 team are kind of working with SPADs in other ministerial uh, teams and other departments. So we know that, for example, Cummings is, is directing special advisors who work for other ministers much more than has been the case in the past with previous number 10 teams. He gives them sort of specific tasks to complete. The number 10 SPADs themselves, not just Cummings, uh, are sort of giving instructions to other ministers. The, the most sort of notable example of that is um, the report that Brandon Lewis's line on um, the UK being prepared to break international law for its internal market bill came from a junior SPAD in number 10. And then I think sort of more kind of down down the grades of SPADs, it's worth thinking as well about, you know, there's a, a growth of advisors who are working both for their minister and for number 10, which is a change from the past as well. So the most uh, sort of famous example of this is is the joint team of advisors who work for for both the Chancellor Rishi Sunak and uh, the PM. Uh, and that's, of course, the arrangement that led Sajid Javid to resign from the government earlier this year. Uh, but there are also other advisors in other departments working for both their minister and the number 10. So, Tim, the situation you describe sounds like a more and more powerful prime minister in number 10. What are they trying to achieve? Is this about empire building or are there positive reasons to uh, to make these changes? Well, I think, you know, it's it's definitely specific to Johnson's way of running government, but also it's worth bearing in mind that lots of prime ministers have complained about number 10 being underpowered compared to the rest of government. You know, the PM doesn't have uh, lots of civil servants to carry out what he or she decides when they you know have specific priorities they generally rely on other ministers to um and, and their departments to actually sort of make those happen so spans have always been an important part of how a prime minister and number 10 you know get those priorities carried out across government um there are sort of key communication track between between a pm and and his ministerial team um so i think it's partly that but as you say emma you know this is clearly something to do with the way johnson likes to run his government I mean, how many times over the, during the pandemic have we seen reports saying the prime minister is taking charge of, you know, testing or the school's response or whatever it might be? He clearly likes to sort of bring things in close. And whether that's him or his team, there is definitely a sense that number 10 sort of, you know, wants to have that control over uh, decisions and over what is happening in government. And what effect does that have on ministers if the prime minister is getting more involved in, in those decisions and owning things himself? Well, I think there are two sides to this. One is that a lot of the people we spoke to about this in government said, actually, it's it's making government business easier. It's, it's getting things done because there's clear lines of communication. People know what the prime minister's priorities are. If there's a view in a department that is different to the view in number 10, that can be explained easily and a, a solution can be arrived at quickly. And I think it's worth pointing out, you know, compared to Theresa May's time in government when because of the minority parliamentary situation and because of the sort of disagreement over the direction of Brexit, there was a lot more kind of uh, ongoing kind of running battles between cabinet members, whereas now, you know, there's a lot more sort of clarity and and sort of uh, single purpose of what this government's doing. Uh, So there are definitely upsides to this. But, and this is one area that our report looks into, is I think, you know, there are cases when it can go too far when um, when ministers become disempowered because they either you know if, if their advisor is sort of working more closely with number 10 and ultimately is sort of working for the prime minister then that minister has lost a trusted source of advice and clearly again if we think about why Javid resigned he said that he thought the chancellor should be able to speak truth to the prime minister and should be able to challenge the prime minister's decisions and that having this joint team of advisors 
would have made that impossible. So I think, you know, where there's reduced challenge, where there's reduced debate, you get generally worse decisions, you get risk of groupthink, but also individual ministers are losing out on sort of their independent uh, advice who, you know, normally a SPAD's primary kind of customer, as it were, is going to be their minister. And if that's, if that's sort of split, then, um, then ministers lose out. Emma, I was just going to add that I think it's quite interesting to put this alongside some of the moves by number 10 to centralise communications much more. Communications are centralised in the Cabinet Office with four DGs there, uh, reporting into Simon Case and uh, and the appointment of the new press spokesman at number 10, which quite a lot of people see as diminishing ministers' roles as the key spokesman on their areas of policy as well as diminishing the role of Parliament. So I think you can put various things together which say, actually, this is a very centralised and controlling number 10, which doesn't really see departments as separate operating entities. It more sees them as, um, if you like, sub subunits of the uh, government as a whole uh, who are there to be told what to do and go off and do it. And Alex, you've seen this from both sides. You've worked in number 10, you've you know worked in senior roles in, uh, in departments. What's your take on the current situation? Do the reforms make sense? Is government being too centralising? Um, I, I do think the government, I think it's being sort of centralising in the wrong way. Um, so I, I do think there is a case for a stronger centre and uh, more uh, authority from you know the prime minister and his top team but i also think you need to let departments get get on and um do things by all means uh, hold them to account and uh, and have methods for re- reporting back in and 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 set their their priorities but uh, there's a self-interest in not uh, allowing too much of the government's business to stick to number 10 because number 10 is the uh, and the cabinet office are the organizations that need to swoop in and sort things out and uh, be credited with resolving problems rather than having everything stick to them uh, in terms of uh, special advisors I, I think it's um it's a loss for ministers in departments if if they don't have a trusted um, uh, advisor that they can talk to themselves. There aren't many people in departments that ministers can really talk frankly and openly with and know that they're completely on their side. And I think now uh, special advisors have such a strong line into number 10, that will be um, that will be a loss and that will lead for less effective um, uh, departmental work. Because overall, I'm absolutely a fan of, of special advisors. Uh, I think they're, um, they've become a really uh, important and fundamental part of, uh, of, of government. Uh, almost every civil servant I know welcomes them, finds them a helpful translation of uh, of a minister's uh, mind and whether it's in number 10 cabinet office or or any other department um there's a they're they're pretty central um to oiling the wheels of of government so uh, i i think i think some of these reforms are going to come back to bite this government and tim are there any other reforms you'd add into the mix how do how do you think the role of that should be reformed well, in, in many cases, I think, you know, one thing that's important to keep, to not change, is that there is a close relationship between a minister and their spouse. So like Alex said, you know, ministers rely on having this person they can trust, they know well, they kind of click with, uh, because it's quite a lonely, well, it's a very lonely job being a minister, it's a pretty lonely job being a spat. And so there needs to be that close relationship between the two of them. So I think my sort of first, I guess, recommendation is, you know, don't, don't reform so much that you lose that close working relationship. Having said that, you know some of what the, the, some of the changes the government are making are, are pretty sensible. They're creating new routes to recruit advisors, so they're bringing in people from different backgrounds, you know, outside the sort of traditional kind of party hack kind of route. And that, those things are, are all, all to the good. I think 
the other thing that can be done uh, sort of more behind the scenes is actually, you know, recognise that these people are professionals and should have uh, the sort of same sort of expectations of any other kind of professional. So proper induction training, explaining how government works and how you can get things done as a SPAD, rather than just throwing them in at the deep end and expecting them to, to kind of sink or swim. And, and providing proper management. None of the none of the spads we spoke to ever had anything really positive to say about any kind of management they'd experienced, whether from their minister or from other more senior advisors. So giving them the support to actually do their jobs well, because as Alex says, you know, everyone in government, 99% of people in government, ministers and civil servants, value what spads do and want them to be able to do it well. So helping them to do that rather than, you know, making huge, big changes to, to the way the role works. And one of the other standout things about this government is not just centralising when it comes to SPADs, but just how well known a few kind of key advisors are, whether it's David Frost or, you know, Dominic Cummings and his his eye test. Jill, is it normal for special advisors to be so prominent or is there something different about the Dominic Cummings and David Frost of this government? Um, we've had some prominent advisors before. I mean, if you think back to Tony Blair era, uh, Jonathan Powell became quite well known for his um, his role, not least in the Good Friday Agreement. Alistair Campbell was a very big beast rampaging around as director of communications in Blair's number 10. Before that, Charles, um, it's not actually an advisor, Charles Powell, I was going to say was a special advisor, but of course he was a civil servant, he just uh, came over as more of a more of a personal advisor to Mrs. Thatcher. But uh, so we have had some big beast before, but I think... We haven't had the equivalent of um, of a special advisor doing a role like David Frost's role, first as the chief negotiator taking over the role that under Theresa May was performed by Ollie Robbins and a cabinet minister, and sort of Frost is a slightly strange amalgam of the two. Or indeed, uh, we've seen more recently, you know, everybody saying that the negotiations we were talking about earlier with the cities. And the Metro Mayors was being done by Robert Jenrick and Eddie Lister, who's one of the Prime Minister's advisors, to add another there. I think one of the interesting questions there is ministers clearly like, or the Prime Minister clearly likes having people he trusts parachuted in to do quite important quasi-civil service roles. And I think then, I think Tim touches this on in his report. I think the question then is what sort of expectations should be laid about how those people are held accountable. Um, we've seen David Frost giving evidence to select committees in his role as chief negotiator, sitting alongside Michael Gove, who makes it clear that Michael Gove cannot answer on the negotiations, will answer on the uh, Brexit preparations, which is his brief, so a division of Labour there. I think it'd be interesting if he does the same thing in his role as national security advisor, I think it's very interesting how do we do that prime minister clearly likes bringing in trusted trusted people we've also had the appointment of i think alex thomas has written about this before people like dido harding and others brought in to run elements of the government's coronavirus response despite the fact these people are sitting in the house of lords they don't go and answer questions on the floor they're not ministers and it's a sort of slightly mm-hmm. odd system it's not just the sort of 
exceptional prominence of, of, of special advisors in this government, which, as Jill was saying, is is not totally exceptional, although it's it's quite extreme. It's the uh, reduced prominence, certainly the reduced authority and power of ministers. I think the the, the real sort of constitutional thing to watch is 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 the um, uh, constrained role of ministers, whether they're being man marked by um, by special advisors in number ten, or whether their roles are being taken up by these kind of quasi civil servant, quasi ministerial uh, public appointments and czars, as Jill was just saying. Uh, but Alex, I mean, that goes to the heart of it. You know, the, uh, Tim's report says that these do disempower ministers. The, the question is whether, from the government's point of view, that was the entire idea. And that's the end of this week's Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Jill Rutter, Alex Thomas, Tim Durrant and Kath Haddon. Thanks so much for being with us. And thanks to all of you at home for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more IFG discussions, then please do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And do leave us a review too. And of course, you can find all our podcasts, our events and all of our work, including Tim's new paper on special advisors at our website, www.instituteforgovernment.org.uk. Who knows what tiers we'll all be in for the next episode, but wherever you are, stay safe, follow the guidance and keep listening to Inside Briefing to make sense of these extraordinary times. <laughs>